Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 172, The Red Scare in Park Square. Hi, I'm Jake. Whenever I have trouble coming up with a topic for the week's podcast, there's always a riot somewhere in Boston's history that I can look to. This week, I'm going to be talking about a draft riot that took place in Boston in 1917. It was neither the first nor the last draft riot in our fair city. A 1970 protest at Northeastern University over the draft in the Vietnam War devolved into a riot. All the way back in 1863, the North End was torn by a draft riot that ended with the militia firing a cannon at a crowd of mostly Irish-American men, women, and children. We've even covered a violent 1747 riot in which Bostonians resisted forced impressment into the Royal Navy. What all those incidents have in common, though, is that the rioters were opposed to the draft. The riot on July 1, 1917 was different. In that case, rioters supported the draft and focused their violence on anti-war protesters. But before we talk about the 1917 draft riot, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is taken from a nifty list of the 10 best books of the 2010s, put out by the BPL at the end of last year. French sociologist Sylvie Tissot's book, Good Neighbors, Gentrifying Diversity in Boston's South End, ruffled a lot of feathers when it was published in 2015. Here's how the publisher describes the book. Does gentrification destroy diversity? Or does it thrive on it? Boston's South End, a legendary working-class neighborhood with the largest Victorian brick row house district in the United States and a celebrated reputation for diversity, has become in recent years a flashpoint for the problems of gentrification. It has borne witness to the kind of rapid transformation leading to pitched battles over the class and race politics throughout the country and indeed the contemporary world. This subtle study of a storied urban neighborhood reveals the ways that upper-middle-class newcomers have positioned themselves as champions of diversity, and how their mobilization around this key concept has reordered class divisions rather than abolished them. A review in the Journal of Contemporary Sociology describes how wealthy residents of the South End opened up to Tissot about their experiences in the neighborhood, but then felt betrayed by her portrayal of their relationships with marginalized communities. Drawing on an extended ethnography of Boston's South End, Tissot focuses on the gentry, even if her political sympathies are quite explicitly with the displaced and or marginalized populations in the new urban hierarchy. Thus, the book's objective is not only to explain the metamorphosis of the inner city, but also the emergence of a specific group within the privileged classes. Eschewing caricature, if not the occasional damning judgment, Tissot deftly and persuasively shows how place is dialectically implicated in the formation of status group identity, charting the terms of an emergent brand of elite liberalism and its now dominant watchword of diversity. A French sociologist based in Paris, Tissot began her Boston research in 2004 while holding a temporary affiliation at Harvard University. This pedigree informs the research both practically and conceptually as an asset in gaining access while also providing a sometimes jaundiced outsider's eye. Tissot adds a sophisticated account of place-based amenities in the active inculcation and performance of cultural capital, capturing the nuances of boundary maintenance in the context of diverse urban milieu and an emergent strain of upper-class liberalism. 
We'll include a link to purchase the book that upset so many members of the South End community in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a talk at the Copley Square branch of the BPL on Tuesday, February 25th. Dr. Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley College will be presenting on her recent book, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, as part of the library's Black History Month series. Published in 2019, Jackson's book explores the tension within the abolitionist movement between the often white activists who are committed to nonviolence and a rising tide of black radicals who believe that it was time to take freedom rather than waiting for it to be given. Here's how the BPL website describes the event. In honor of Black History Month, join us for a meaningful experience with Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson. Her new book, Force and Freedom, examines the conditions that led some black abolitionists to believe slavery might only be abolished by violent force. In Force and Freedom, Carter Jackson provides the first historical analysis exclusively focused on the tactical use of violence among antebellum black activists. Go beyond the honorable politics of moral suasion and the romanticism of the Underground Railroad and into an exploration of the agonizing decisions, strategies, and actions of the black abolitionists who, though lacking an official political voice, were nevertheless responsible for instigating monumental social and political change. The talk begins at 6 p.m., admission is free, and registration is not required. Copies of the book will be offered for sale by Trident booksellers at the event, and Dr. Carter Jackson will be on hand to sign them. Speaking of Black History Month, there's a bonus event that I'd like to mention this week. On April 18th, a little far in the future, the Hyde Park Historical Society will be presenting about Dr. Rebecca Crumpler at the Hyde Park Library. Way back in episode 18, in this podcast's first Black History Month, we profiled Dr. Rebecca Davis Lee Crumpler. Dr. Crumpler was born in Delaware, raised in Pennsylvania, and educated in Massachusetts, attending first the West Newton English and Classical School and later the New England Female Medical College in Boston. In 1864, she became the first African-American woman to earn the title Doctoress of Medicine. After the Civil War, she moved to Virginia with her second husband, Arthur Crumpler, where she provided medical care for the large population of African Americans who had until recently been enslaved and remained deeply impoverished at the time. She later practiced in Boston before retiring to what was then the independent town of Hyde Park. Arthur was an interesting figure in his own right. He was enslaved from birth in Virginia and used the outbreak of the Civil War as cover to escape to freedom. Then he worked for the Union Army before finally making his way to Boston and meeting Rebecca. After Dr. Crumpler died in 1895, Arthur went to night school for three years to learn how to read and write. At 74 years old, he was proud to finally be able to read the newspapers and take comfort from the Bible without assistance. He passed away in 1910. Both Arthur and Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler are buried in Fairview Cemetery, the local neighborhood cemetery here in Hyde Park. At the time we profiled Dr. Crumpler in 2017, I pointed out what a shame it is that the first African-American woman to become a doctor and a self-emancipated slave who worked for Union Victory and became a man of faith in letters were buried without a headstone to recognize them. Well, I'm happy to announce that the Friends of the Hyde Park Library and the Hyde Park Historical Society are working to rectify that situation. They're trying to raise $5,000 to purchase and dedicate a headstone for the Crumplers and your donation 
would make a big difference. They can accept donations via check or PayPal at friendshplibrary.org. We'll link to information about how to donate, as well as the details of the Force and Freedom talk in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 172. And now it's time for this week's main topic. By the time the parade reached the corner of Tremont and School Streets, across from King's Chapel, it was probably about 3.30 p.m. on July 1st, 1917. The column of, depending on whose count you believe, somewhere between 2,500 and 8,000 marchers was led by an American flag. The group of union organizers, peace activists, and political radicals carried banners questioning the wisdom and morality of the newly implemented military draft and advocating for peace. Suddenly, a mob appeared from a side street. About 1,300 men, roughly a third of whom were uniformed members of the U.S. Army and Navy, marched in their own columns directly at the peace parade. Associated press reports would describe the mob as self-organized squads of uniformed soldiers and sailors, making it clear that although the military men were in uniform and quickly organized themselves into formation, they were not acting under orders from the military chain of command. The two groups met head-on in Tremont Street, and the uniformed mob marched headlong through the center of the peace parade, grabbing protest signs and knocking marchers to the ground. A group of women from the original parade sought shelter in the entrance to the Cambridge subway, while, as the Globe put it, for nearly 15 minutes, several hundred men engaged in a general fistfight until police broke up the gathering. Reporting in the July 2nd edition of The Globe makes it clear that although most of the violence and provocation came from one side of the clash, most of the arrests occurred on the other side. In fact, federal agents were reported to have prevented the Boston police from arresting anyone involved in breaking up the parade. Had it not been for the fact that just such an occurrence was fully anticipated by the Federal Department of Justice agents, the violence would without doubt have mounted to much more serious proportions. They were in control of the combined police and secret service forces and held the mob in leash without letting the mob know it. There may have been 50 or 500 secret service agents in the crowd. Their activity is not to be recorded. But here and there, all through the afternoon, one or another could be seen taking a young or old man in tow. Frequently, these were turned over to the Boston police. Often, they had failed to produce draft registration cards. Early in the first scrapping, David A. DeBonis of 415 Columbus Ave was hit over the head by a policeman's club, he says, just after he had seized a flag from a socialist. Special Agent Schmidt of the Department of Justice whispered to the patrolman, and DeBonis was released to find his way to the Haymarket Square relief station, where his head was bandaged. The whole thing started at about 2.45 p.m. on a Sunday. A crowd of peace activists gathered outside the state Socialist Party headquarters at Park Square and began organizing themselves into four divisions. There were party members from Boston Proper, Roxbury, Malden, Grove Hall, and Southie. There were groups who identified as Lithuanian, Italian, Jewish, Estonian, and Lettish, or Latvian. Along with the self-identified socialists, there were also members of the labor movement including a small detachment of Wobblies from the Industrial Workers of the World and other groups from the Amalgamated Clothing Workers and the United Hebrew Trades. The plan was to march from Park Square to Elliott Street, which is now Stewart Street, then up Tremont Street along the Common, turn onto Cambridge Street and eventually Charles Street, 
making a full lap around Beacon Hill, and bringing Charles Street back past the Common to Park Square. Mayor James Michael Curley had issued their parade permit, as well as permits for the Boston Socialist Club, the Boston Socialist Party, and the Boston Rationalist Society to hold a rally on the Common after the parade was over. Behind the American flag at the head of the column, there were many other flags and placards in evidence among the paraders. Most of them carried small peace flags, rectangles of red cloth with a white circle in the middle. Many carried neatly hand-lettered signs with slogans like, We demand peace, or, If this is a popular war, why conscription? Some of them were more inflammatory, like, We are not pacifists. We believe in war on our true enemy, capitalism. Or, Russia has a six-hour workday, why not America? By all reports, the biggest banner of all was carried by at least ten men and followed right behind the American flag, saying, Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains and the world to gain. That one caught the eye of some passing soldiers. The first draft since the Civil War had gone into effect on June 5th, and there were now recruiting tents all along Boston Common, adding to the volume of military personnel already stationed at the Navy Yard and the many smaller facilities around the city. Some of the passing soldiers went to Boston Common, gathered up their friends, and came back. Socialist spokesman James O'Neill later described the first confrontation between the socialist group and a growing crowd of angry soldiers. Our parade formed in an orderly manner in Park Square. Before leaving the square, a band of 25 or more sailors and soldiers paraded in the square, making suggestive remarks which were calculated to arouse the resentment of the marchers and to test the degree of tolerance of the few policemen present. A few strong words from the police got the loosely organized group of military men to disperse, and the parade began. A few minutes later, as the parade passed the recruiting tents on the common along Tremont Street, a group of soldiers began marching down the street toward them, threatening to collide head-on. Again, the police got out in front. Again, the soldiers were convinced to disperse. Then the parade approached School Street, and all hell broke loose. After the clash at School Street, the parade collapsed into bedlam and violence, and leaders of the march decided to fall back to Boston Common. Their permit said that they could assemble on the Common's baseball fields to listen to a series of speakers. However, five minutes after they arrived, Boston Police Superintendent Michael Crowley announced that the permit for their rally was revoked, and he ordered the crowd to disperse. Unfortunately, the uniformed mob also decided to check out the speakers on the common. The next day's Globe reported, From Tremont Street, the crowd flowed into the common like a flood, finally congregating on the baseball field, where the socialists who were to speak at the planned meeting tried to make themselves heard. But the people would not settle down. They sped around and around, not unlike cattle, rushing to all the numerous fights and tussles over the banners and signs, all of which were torn to bits at last and trampled underfoot, except the American flag, which the military men appropriated and carried at the head of their columns. Groups of soldiers charged any of the speakers who dared continue their addresses, forcing them to cede their dioceses, with the exception of one. The Globe noted that the mob approached the president of the Boston Rationalist Society as he was speaking, but his talk was so incomprehensible that he was left unmolested. Fights continued as the marchers began to trickle out of the common. One large band of soldiers climbed up the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. 
Another went on an impromptu parade to Park Square, carrying all the banners they'd captured from the socialists. And yet a third decided to keep tabs on the concert that was being performed on the Common completely unrelated to the day's other activities. In his book, Manufacturing Hysteria, Jay Feldman says, Adding a bizarre, surrealistic touch to the bedlam was the customary Sunday concert on Parkman Bandstand, which started up and continued even as the contiguous pandemonium raged. Soon, the men in military uniforms had taken over the management of the concert, instructing the orchestra on which songs to play, and commanding the assembled listeners on when to doff their hats, as an ad hoc vigilance committee made sure they complied. The coverage in the next day's Globe included this detail. Down across the slope, the band was starting to play Dixie, and, Hats off! came the cry from a hundred throats again. A man more than 60 years old was trying to tell Officer Prempus that the racing back and forth on the common by mobs was disorderly, and he neglected to doff his hat to Dixie. Take off that brown fedora, mister, yelled a young man in civilian clothes, or we'll take it off for you. According to the report, the cop yelled out to leave the old man alone and then led him away from the trouble. It was surprising to me to read in news reports that civilians were threatened with violence if they left their hats on while the band played Dixie. Barely 50 years after the Civil War, soldiers stationed in the Union stronghold of Boston considered the de facto national anthem of the Confederate enemy a patriotic song requiring hats to be taken off. That's proof enough for me that the neo-Confederate lost cause narrative had won the war for hearts and minds by 1917. Not satisfied with the havoc they'd already caused, someone in the uniformed mob had the bright idea to rush to the Socialist Party headquarters. 14 Park Square was an ordinary-looking bowfront brownstone, four stories tall plus an attic. There was a tire shop on the first floor, a print shop on the second, and the Socialist Party worked out of the third story. Somebody in the mob kicked down the door, and a figure in a Marine Corps uniform soon appeared in the third-floor window. He played the national anthem on a bugle, and members of the crowd below sang along with him. As he finished, the crowd charged up the stairs, and soon everything inside the offices began sailing out the windows. Reams of paper, printing presses, tables and chairs, telephones, lamps, and more. In the streets outside, somebody lit a bonfire, and the Socialist Party's furniture and papers were fed into it. As the mob ransacked Socialist Party headquarters in Park Square... James O'Neill called the Boston Police Department for assistance, but their arrival was less than helpful. He later told the Boston Globe how they took their sweet time responding to his call. A call sent by me to police headquarters brought seven or eight policemen about ten minutes later. They walked leisurely across Boylston Street into the square while papers were flying from the windows. They did not increase their pace, nor did another group of four or five that approached a few minutes later. Not only did the police respond slowly, they did little to disperse the crowd upon their arrival. Instead, O'Neill claimed that the police mostly just stood around and watched as the crowd looted the offices. Pictures taken during the sack of socialist headquarters show crumpled paper showering down outside like a snowstorm or a ticker tape parade. Coverage in the July 2nd evening edition of The Globe uncovered a deliberate order by police superintendent Crowley not to use the BPD to restrain the rioting soldiers and sailors. The Boston police had large reserves ready to be called from LaGrange Street Station, 
and the secret servicemen were present in and around the common in large numbers. The question was how to handle the inevitable rioting that was to follow. And the result of the conference apparently was an agreement between Superintendent Crowley and the Secret Service that worse trouble than ever would ensue if the policemen attempted to arrest men in Army, Navy, or National Guard uniforms who were leading the onslaught on the socialists. As a result, most of the police reserves were kept in the station all the afternoon, waiting for a hurry call that didn't come. The alternative to police protection which was decided upon was this, evidently. That the Navy should be called upon to send out armed bluejackets, who would reasonably be expected to be more effective in restraining the spirits of uncommanded Navy and Army men than the policemen would be. A bluejacket is an enlisted sailor who holds a rank below that of Chief Petty Officer, what's also referred to simply as a seaman. The evening edition continues with a description of their eventual arrival on the scene. Things had quieted down and hundreds were turning homeward when suddenly the first detachment of organized troops of the afternoon, the first to show guns, came briskly across the common trying to find out where the disturbance was. Over in Park Square they went, and the incident command told a Boston police sergeant that he was there to handle the situation. He tried to find out where the disturbing element was. Only a few hundred were in the square when the reservists arrived, but thousands followed them from the common and choked the square. The ensign promptly ordered his men to fix their bayonets, and the crowd was pushed back. By this time, the police had completely faded into the background, leaving the reservists in control. One police sergeant suggested to the reservist officer in command that if he would only lead his men out of the square again, the crowd would follow them and leave the place comparatively peaceful again. But the ensign was not taking suggestions from any police officer any more than from the Department of Justice men. He got in communication with his superior at Commonwealth Pier and was told to come back to the ship. Their Park Square visit had lasted about an hour. So the naval force didn't exactly have the intended effect. According to one report, there were about 500 people left in Park Square when the sailors showed up. However, watching the contingent of armed sailors march through the streets and across the common, several thousand people got curious and followed them to Park Square where they stayed and gawked until the Blue Jackets left again. The inaction of the Boston police and the Justice Department's apparent defense of the rioting armed forces personnel led to conspiracy theories that were embraced by everyone from wild-eyed radical socialists to Boston Mayor James Michael Curley. Many believed that the mob had been tacitly sanctioned by the DOJ as a way to crack down on dissent. O'Neill, the Socialist Party spokesman, denied that his group was engaged in any behaviors that the Justice Department should be interested in investigating. No suggestion was offered or discussed at any time to interfere with recruiting or to oppose the enforcement of the Conscription Act, though we favor its repeal. We have never harbored the absurd illusion attributed to us of stopping the war. We know this is beyond our power. But we did and do hope that by mobilizing opinion in favor of peace, we may be of some service in hastening the peace conference that must sometime meet and thus save many lives that will otherwise be sacrificed. We also had in mind the preservation of democratic institutions, which war and militarism always threaten. It wasn't an era that was friendly to dissenting opinions. After the draft went into effect on June 5th, President Woodrow Wilson signed a new Espionage Act just 10 days later. 
It had a provision which prohibited conveying information with intent to interfere with the cooperation or success of the armed forces of the United States. The U.S. Department of Justice was charged with enforcing the law, which it chose to interpret incredibly broadly. Certainly the DOJ agents in the crowd seemed to be interested in far more than just draft dodging. An Associated Press article that ran in papers all over the country said that Agents to the Federal Department of Justice, under the direction of Assistant District Attorney Goldberg, arrested a number of persons who were alleged to have made unpatriotic remarks. That same AP article appeared in dozens of newspapers across the country, usually running under headlines written by local editors. It's interesting to see what different headlines reveal about the attitudes around the country at the time. The Daily Bonanza of Tonopa, Nevada took a just-the-facts-ma'am approach, running the story under a headline stating, Socialist demonstration is broken up in Boston. The Richmond Times said, Hundreds of fights mark peace parade of Boston socialists. In Abilene, Kansas, the weekly reflector went with the straightforward, Soldiers break up peace parade. In Macon, Mississippi, the beacon said, Big peace parade is cause of riot. The Lincoln County Times of Idaho crowed, Soldiers mob socialists. The intelligencer of Wheeling, West Virginia, ran a page one headline that may have let a small amount of bias creep in, saying, Wearers of Uncle Sam's khaki break up socialist peace demonstration at Boston. Unpatriotic parade banners stirred up the ire of Bostonese. Perhaps the best headline I stumbled across was from the Pioneer of Iditarod, Alaska, which made the paper's editorial position perfectly clear. Uncle Sam's fighters wreak their vengeance upon disloyal socialists. Today we're getting used to the idea that Americans of different political opinions live in entirely separate media ecospheres, where they consume news through a heavily partisan lens. The same could be said of the media landscape in 1917, with reporting on the riot heavily influenced by the political stance of each news outlet. For example, the Herald of Essex County, Vermont, lamented, This was a most disgraceful affair, and the sailors, soldiers, marines, and guardsmen taking part disgraced the uniform they wear and brought reproach to the service and shame to all true American hearts. These are not representative of the manhood we are sending into the army, but a scum class that unfortunately got in and brings shame to honest citizens. However much we may differ from the socialists and their principles, they are entitled to the same freedom and protection as we are, and should have those rights up to the point of demarcation of upholding the law and order and inciting riots. The Boston Socialists were within their rights and held permits for this public meeting and parade. The riot on Sunday was a black mark against American sailors and soldiers, and repudiated by all loyal and fair-minded Americans. At the other end of the spectrum, an editorial in the Indianapolis News was purely celebratory. What happened is no doubt just what should have happened. The soldiers are to be congratulated on having broken up the parade, destroyed the banners, and burned their literature without any casualties. In Pensacola, Florida, an editorial in the July 19th Journal made it clear that any dissent should be considered disloyalty to the flag and that the mob was therefore justified. In Boston, socialists tried to hold what they called a pro-peace meeting, but what was in reality an anti-American demonstration. They carried red flags, symbol of anarchy, and banners with such inscriptions 
as Liberty Loan, a first mortgage on labor. They made unpatriotic remarks about the United States. It was incipient disloyalty. The demonstration was broken up by a number of American boys in khaki who constituted themselves into an impromptu committee of the whole and nipped the scheme in the bud. Easygoing people that they are, Americans cannot be warned too often of the danger. Germany's intrigue is as active as ever. Germany has thousands of agents in this country, and the socialists, the emergency peacers, the IWW, and the freak organizations that substitute for single loyalty and directness of conduct the theories which weak and unnatural minds affect are their indirect allies. In the Washington, D.C. suburb of Alexandria, Virginia, where political protest was common even in 1917, a straight news piece in the Gazette began, Anti-conscription demonstrations in Boston brings attack in the streets. It was a bad day for socialism and socialists in Boston yesterday. Their parade and anti-conscription demonstration was broken up as a result of a number of riots centering on Boston Common. The Evening Farmer of Bridgeport, Connecticut, took a unique stance, basically arguing that if the socialists in Boston were good socialists, they would have been pro-war. Socialism has for one of its tenets that war is a class affair, by which the working class invariably suffers more than it gains. Hence, socialists have usually been opposed to war. The present war promises to bring the working classes of the world more beneficial reforms than they've gained in a hundred years before. So dominant are the reasons why war should go on that the socialists of Russia have decided to fight. At the very time when the Boston socialists were parading for peace, the Russian army, commanded by socialists and directed by a socialist government, was shedding the blood of class-conscious workers in the cause of democracy. By what claim of worth or knowledge do American socialists oppose war and a just victory? when their brethren in Europe, far more numerous, more intelligent, and more successful, are fighting for liberty. By the same token, those who interfered by force with the Boston demonstration were in error. For if these socialists are mistaken, their brethren are on the right side, and these will be. Nor was the red flag an occasion for a demonstration. That is the flag of Russia, and Russia is an ally of the United States, and Russian blood is being shed with American blood. And since German-Americans faced unprecedented discrimination and harassment as the war began, at least unprecedented for white people, it might be funny to hear this coverage in the Tribune of Omaha, Nebraska. Milizsoldaten und Matrosen in Boston, die nichts Besseres zu tun hatten, haben einen großen Sieg errungen. Sie haben ein paar Fahnen erobert, die von Friedensdemonstranten getragen wurden. Roughly translated, the droll paragraph says, Militia soldiers and sailors in Boston, who had nothing better to do, have achieved a giant victory. They have captured a few flags that were carried by peace demonstrators. Even here in Boston, opinion was split. Was the riot an attack on filthy reds bent on undermining America's armed forces? Or was it a disgrace that betrayed the values those forces were fighting for in the first place? A.Z. Conrad, the pastor of Park Street Church, weighed in with a sermon on the very evening of the riot. The men in khaki did right in rushing into the socialists' ranks and seizing their red banners, as well as in invading their socialist headquarters and throwing out their contents. One of the janitors of this church lighted the fire 
and I am tempted to promote him to the office of assistant pastor. This is no time for dealing timidly with the incipient rebellion. No time for soldiers and sailors who may soon be in the trenches to receive insult from those who are anarchists at heart. It is no time to talk in any weak fashion, but to support the administration as long as it is trying to put down tyranny. It is no time to allow those who have no regard for God or man to have their way with the line of freedom and unbridled speech. When a man talks down his country's flag, there is a limit to free speech. It is time to deal firmly with the great howling mob, even though it be represented as a parade on Boston Common. Staking the polar opposite claim, the Boston Journal wondered instead who would deal firmly with the howling mob that represented itself as uniformed members of the armed forces. The only punishment thus far meted out to the soldiers and sailors who took part last Sunday in the Prussianizing of Boston Common is the decision by high military authority that enlisted men shall have read to them the regulations regarding their conduct in civil communities. Unoffending civilian men and women were bruised and robbed. An office situated on a public street and in a tax-paying building was looted and its contents destroyed, and the People's Park was a rioting ground for a group of men in uniform. Surely, even the extreme type of military mind, which has no room for the ordinary processes of civilian thought, does not expect that the uniform can get away with last Sunday's history. What is Washington going to do about it? As the unrest in Boston made national headlines, Secretary of War Newton Baker was forced to respond. It has come to my knowledge that a few men wearing uniforms have taken it upon themselves to disturb public meetings and interfere with the rights of assembly and free speech. They have, of course, no authority for such behavior and no excuse. Whatever the patriotic motives on which they may believe themselves to be acting, the fact is that they are breaking the law, but their wearing the American uniform makes such rowdyism all the more intolerable. Despite the comments of the Secretary of War, and despite every eyewitness report saying that the rioters were led and inspired by soldiers, sailors, and Marines, General Clarence Ransom Edwards, who commanded the Military Department of the Northeast, was pretty sure that none of his troops were involved. The evening edition of The Globe for July 2nd says, General Edwards' statement was in part as follows. As regards the trouble yesterday, that is positively under the jurisdiction of the municipal and state authorities, and it would be presumption in me to interfere or suggest anything. I am always ready, however, to aid the authorities in any way I can. If any federal regulars or militiamen in the federal service ever interfere with any legitimate expression of public opinion, I will deal with them peremptorily. General Edwards further expressed his opinion that none of the men in the Federal Service had any part in the melee. The day after the parade and riot, General Edwards, Governor Samuel McCall, and Mayor Curley met at the State House. McCall spoke to the press to denounce the violence without endorsing the socialist cause, saying, While I am far from being a socialist, the way to defeat their doctrines is not illegally to invade their headquarters, destroy their property, and break up their parades. I am of the opinion that the part played by the soldiers and sailors has been exaggerated. But at the same time, it was very unfortunate that men wearing the uniform of the United States took any part in such a disturbance. In doing so, they violated the first essential of military and naval discipline and I know their participation is strongly disapproved by the commanding Army and Navy officers. 
that wishy-washy denunciation wasn't enough for socialist spokesman James O'Neill, who was quoted in the July 3rd Globe demanding more meaningful punishment of the rioters. In view of all this, how is it that of those arrested, not a single soldier or sailor was among them? A soldier or sailor has no more rights in a public demonstration than any civilian. And when these boys assaulted men and women in the streets and invaded our premises, a blow was struck at the civil rights of every citizen of the Commonwealth. If nothing is done by either the city or federal authorities to punish the guilty parties, sanction will have been given to terrorism, and mobs will usurp the police powers of the city, and all free discussion and assemblage will be a memory. If irresponsible boys are to usurp the police powers of the city and state, then civil liberty is a mockery and free discussion a lie. An Associated Press article reflected the frustration of other socialist leaders as they saw the uniformed mob going unpunished. George E. Rower, representing the Workmen's Council of Greater Boston, sent today to Governor McCall and Commandant William R. Rush of the Navy Yard formal requests that they turn over to the civil authorities the sailors, marines, and national guardsmen who took part in the street disturbances last Sunday. In making the request, Mr. Rower said that if officials were unable to identify the persons involved, he would be glad to loan them a mass of evidence which would, without the slightest question, clearly point out those responsible. Mayor Curley faced intense criticism because he'd been on vacation in the Berkshires when the riot occurred. He was also under fire for approving the socialist parade permit in the first place. His defense hung on a free speech platform while hinting at a conspiracy between the DOJ and the military. I believe that a great mistake was made in breaking up the socialist demonstration Sunday. It certainly looks as though the affair had been prearranged. I know that there's been intense feeling against the activities of the socialists in certain quarters of this city, but I am a firm believer in the right of free speech. And if the socialists or anybody else ask me for a permit to parade or to speak on the common at some time in the future, I certainly shall grant it. When the time comes when free speech that is the truth becomes treason, America shall cease to be a democracy. I have been several times requested to prevent the socialists from speaking on the common. A few weeks ago, a State Street banker called on me for that purpose. He suggested that some of the remarks of the socialists might be treasonable and that their literature was certainly such. I told him that I would never move to prevent free speech, that in a republic it was as important as the right of a free and unmuzzled press. I pointed out to him that the federal courts were instituted to care for such cases, and that if he knew of any treason, I would be glad to refer the matter to the Department of Justice. Later, other persons asked that I prohibit the circulation of socialist literature. I referred that matter to the United States District Attorney. That position is somewhat ironic, since about three years later, Mayor Curley would take a stand against the KKK, flat out banning their rallies in Boston, despite protests from the ACLU and other civil liberties organizations. In that case, he would argue for limits on free speech, saying, The Klan cannot expect to shelter itself behind the rights it denies and the guarantees it repudiates. You can hear more about Mayor Curley's crusade to ban the Klan in episode 148. Back in 1917, Curley also used the opportunity of the Statehouse meeting to take a swipe at a political rival, Storo Drive namesake James J. Storo. At the time, fellow Democrat Storo was the city council president. 
He was seen as being friendly to the labor movement, and he was very clearly interested in taking Curley's job one day. Along with his defense of free speech, Curley threw some shade at Storo. On Saturday, a man called upon Superintendent of Police Crowley, representing that he was the mayor of the city in my absence. He asked the superintendent to prevent the socialists from carrying their banners of protests or their red flags. Of course, the city council president was the acting mayor in Curley's absence. With this simple statement, Curley both diminished Storo's importance and undermined his reputation as being labor-friendly. What a consummate politician. Three weeks after their parade was cut short by a violent attack, the Workmen's Council of Greater Boston, one of the socialist umbrella organizations, announced that they would hold a second rally on the common. The decision made headlines around the country, with many newspaper writers wondering whether the violence would be repeated. Here in Boston, some of the headlines wondered whether the rally would be permitted to proceed at all. On July 21st, the eve of the event, the Globe carried a brief article about the upcoming rally, including a statement by Mayor Curley. Free speech, said the mayor, is one of our most sacred institutions. Mary Dyer gave up her life under Governor Endicott for that very thing and almost on the same spot on which these people wish to hold their meeting. It does not seem to me that I ought to interfere with it. He has notified Superintendent Crowley of the police department and the latter has assured him that he will provide adequate protection. No untoward demonstration is expected owing to the fact that there will be no parade. Federal authorities will probably have stenographers present to take down anything that may be considered of a treasonable nature and the provost guard will be present also. When that second rally was held on July 22nd, Boston was in the grip of a deadly heat wave, with temperatures topping 92 degrees. Two 45-year-old men were found dead from heat stroke, one on Washington Street and one at Newspaper Row. Two 18-year-old friends were treated and released at Boston City Hospital after collapsing while walking together at Roxbury Crossing. Perhaps it was because that severe heat kept the rowdy element at bay, or maybe it was because the second rally was a tamer affair, but no disturbances were reported on the common. Fifty police officers and a provost guard of a hundred soldiers and sailors were on hand to make sure things didn't get out of hand, but the Globe noted that they had nothing to do except stand with the 2,000 or 3,000 other wilting persons and listen to the three labor and socialist speakers. Estimates of the number of rioters on July 1, 1917 range from 10 to 20,000, dwarfing most of the other riots in Boston history. So why don't we remember the 1917 riot the way we do the 1863 draft riot or the 1747 impressment riot or even the 2001 Super Bowl riots for that matter? Well, for one thing, nobody was killed in 1917 and the only property damage was done to a deeply unpopular group who held unpopular opinions. But perhaps most importantly, the Boston riots were quickly pushed off the front pages by a terrible event the very next day. After months of tension centered on the labor movement, racist violence swept East St. Louis, Illinois on July 2, 1917. Thousands of white rioters burned the black section of town, shooting African Americans as they ran from the flames. The NAACP estimated that up to 200 people were killed and 6,000 were left homeless. Though the violence in East St. Louis was on an entirely different scale, and the riot in Boston didn't have the same racist component, many journalists tried to connect the two incidents. An editorial in Vermont's Bennington Banner said, 
The anti-socialist riots in Boston and the anti-Negro riots at East St. Louis are not very creditable to a nation that claims to be trying to make the world safe for democracy. The foundations of democracy are free speech, free labor, and free assemblage. To attack these is to strike a blow in favor of autocracy and oppression. It is not laws and constitutions that bring liberty and freedom to the world, but popular education and the right of the individual to work out his own destiny unmenaced and unoppressed, so long as he does not interfere with the rights of others. Until some treasonable act is committed or suggested, until some public or private wrong is done or undertaken, no true friend of the United States, no servant of popular freedom, no child of true democracy should permit himself to strike a blow. To take the law into one's own hands to enforce one's own partisanship is a crime against the liberty of a free people. Noted pacifist Reverend John Haynes Holmes also tied the riots in Boston and East St. Louis together. Holmes was a Malden native who'd gone to Harvard Divinity School and now preached at New York City's Unitarian Church of the Messiah. The New York Sun quoted the sermon he preached on July 22, 1917. If America is to make the world safe for democracy, it must itself be made and kept inviolably safe for democracy. Is America democratic in such wise that she can talk about democracy to other peoples or fight for it in foreign fields? What about a political system that denies the right of franchise to one half the population? What about a social system that outlaws the Negro from equality and brings down upon him atrocities in East St. Louis to rival the atrocities in Belgium? Is America safe for democracy while these things last? More alarming still are the assaults on democracy now being made at home in the very name of that war now being fought for democracy abroad. Men are constantly being arrested for exercising the right of free speech, which is guaranteed by the Constitution. Newspapers and magazines are being arbitrarily suppressed in violation of the constitutional privilege of a free press. A group of socialists in Boston, granted permission by the mayor to parade and to hold a meeting on the historic Boston Common, are set upon by soldiers and sailors, their persons assaulted, their offices burglarized, and their property destroyed. Is this democracy? Is America safe for democracy? The answer is plain. And yet there are those who see nothing dangerous in this situation, either to the present war or to the peace which must follow upon this war. Waiving all pacifist considerations for the moment, and speaking wholly from the militarist standpoint, one thing should be certain, that this war can never be fought to a successful conclusion until the people are safeguarded at home in the exercise of these elementary rights of democracy for the perpetuation of which abroad they are asked to fight and to die. I do not often find myself in agreement with Colonel Roosevelt, meaning Teddy Roosevelt, but he spoke as a true American when he said recently, in reference to the East St. Louis Massacre, Before we speak of justice for others, it behooves us to do justice within our own household. It would be nice to say that Boston's conscription riot was the worst or even the last attempt to stomp out unpopular opinions that occurred during the Great War. But that's unfortunately not the case. Tune in to Hub History Episode 35 to learn how the director of the Boston Symphony Orchestra was detained and eventually deported, simply because he thought that opening every orchestra performance with the Star-Spangled Banner was in poor taste. To learn more about the Socialist Parade and Pro-Draft Riot of 1917, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 172. 
will have photos of the socialist headquarters in Park Square before and during the riot, pictures of the Blue Jackets fixing bayonets, and of the uniformed mob setting fires in Park Square. I'll also link to all the news stories I quoted from, as well as a few others that didn't quite fit the narrative. If you recall our episode about the regicides, who fled to Boston after sentencing King Charles I to death, or our episode about the 1689 uprising in Boston against Governor Andros, you may remember a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Grey Champion. Hawthorne builds on a true story about the regicide Richard Goff, who is famous as a swordsman. During King Philip's War in 1675, Goff emerged from hiding and rallied the defense of Hadley Mass against an attack. In his story, Hawthorne transports the old swordsman to Boston, having him rally the resistance against Sir Edmund Andros in 1689. In the show notes, I'll link to a newer version of the Great Champion created in the late 1930s or perhaps early 1940s. It was written by William James Sidus, a former child prodigy who graduated from Harvard at age 16. He was a committed pacifist, socialist, and opponent of the Great War. And in his version of the Great Champion, an old man appears in the windows of the Socialist Party office in Park Square to inspire the anti-war protesters outside. Read it alongside Hawthorne's original for a real kick. And of course... I'll link to information about our upcoming event and Good Neighbors, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I let you go, I just want to say thank you to everyone who sponsors Hub History on Patreon. Each week, we research a new topic and write an episode about it, usually about 15 pages worth. Or maybe we line up an author interview, then read the book, and try to think up some good questions to ask the author. That part of creating a podcast takes time, which we're happy to spend. Unfortunately, producing a podcast also takes money. We have to pay for website hosting and security, podcast media hosting, audio processing tools, transcription services, and more. Your support for as little as $2 a month makes the show possible. A big thank you to everyone who supports the show. If you're not sponsoring us yet and you'd like to, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. If you'd like to get in touch with us about this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the last American women jailed for suffrage. Mm-hmm.